Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Cultural Studies Podcast. My name is Toby Miller, and my guest today is... Jeffrey Montes de Oca. Prof. Montes de Oca, it's great to see you. Tell me what you're up to, what you're thinking about, what's mattering to you at the moment. So probably the main thing I've been thinking about this last week and a half is pain. I, uh, pain, okay. Yeah, yeah, I broke my leg just before New Year's riding oh, my mountain great. bike. Yeah, I, 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 I snapped my tibia right in half. And uh, I needed search and rescue to come and get me off of uh, off the trail. I was probably a quarter mile from a trailhead. And was there a mountain there... lion there to lick your wound? <laughs> I wish <laughs> that'd have been awesome. Yeah, no, I was riding my bike down there. It was a beautiful day, and it, you know it's one of those things because I live here in Colorado Springs, and, and, and so. It's it can be very sunny and warm in the middle of of winter, and yeah. you take a turn on the trail into a canyon that's shady, and the trail is covered with ice. And uh, sure enough, I I slipped on the ice, broke my broke my tibia, and as I was laying there, I was thinking about how to get myself off of this trail. Uh, look down at my foot, and it's just dangling. Right there's there's nothing I can do with it. And so I, I was thinking I could trail, I could crawl the quarter mile down this trail to get to get to the trailhead. And and sadly, I was very proud of myself because I called my family. Now, I should step back a little bit. My wife hates the fact that I mountain bike because she is a risk averse person. So she has no understanding of why I would do something like this that puts my life and health at risk when there are lots of other ways to get exercise that are much safer. So I have one of those iPhones, which I really hate the iPhone, but I bought it because if I ever knock myself unconscious on the trail, it will notify um, search and rescue. It'll notify her that, that something really bad has happened. So, so the phone went off. And I, uh, you know, I, you know, I, I respond to it and say, no, I'm conscious. And then it asks if it wants me to, to contact emergency services. And I'm like, I'm going to get myself out of here. So I, I turned I turned it down. And um, and, you know, and the way I was thinking in that moment is I'm going to wait. The, it hurts a lot. I've probably probably broken my leg, but. If the pain subsides in a few minutes, that means I haven't broken my leg and I can ride home. <laughs> and then it, the pain did not subside. I reach down, I feel my leg, and I can feel the bone stick in the, in the wrong direction. And that's when I think, maybe I'll just scoot my way down this trail. And I start to move my way down the trail. And, you, you know, I could have done it. But it would take in an hour or two to get that, to cover that quarter mile. So I was so proud of myself for calling my family to come and help me. And they came up there and it was clear there was no way my son, my older son, who is probably 50 pounds lighter than me, was going to help me down the trail. And so uh, my wife wisely called emergency services and search and rescue came and, you know, they drugged me up, they gurneyed me and they, they took me to the hospital. Keep in mind, I am a, a masculinity scholar of some repute, mostly ill, but of some repute. I teach classes on this and here I am. It didn't even reasonably occur to me to call for help other than my family because I thought if they got me to the trailhead, I could sit in the car and take the ride to to and the you're hospital. You're also a person of Native American heritage for whom macho pioneering West of the Rockies ethos is, shall we say, deeply problematic? Oh, my God. Absolutely. <laughs> right. It's like there, there's so many aspects to this. Yeah. Right? Yeah. So in terms of my current research. This is actually, this is this. Here's the silver lining. There's not much silver lining to a broken tibia, 
because it's extremely painful. And now for the past, you know, it's been a little over a week now and, and I'm finally able to move around because they put, they put a, ran a rod through my leg. Um, you know, I'm finally able to start moving around very effectively. But this is good for my research because about a year ago, I decided I was going to start uh, studying mountain biking. And, um, and, and and so, you know, the ride, you know, every ride now is part of the research, right? And so a big part of mountain biking is, is injury and pain. Yeah. And uh, it's been fascinating you know, I, I posted a picture from the emergency room of my foot pointing in the wrong direction. And uh, the reactions that people have is very, is, I was like, th- this is what really got me thinking about the pain part is, yeah, okay, I'm, I'm, I'm experiencing a lot of pain, but what does my pain mean to other people? Hmm. And so I don't post a lot on social media. And as a result, I don't tend to get a lot of responses to my posts, but I got a tremendous number of responses to the posts on, uh, on uh, from the hot, the emergency room. And most of most of the responses are fairly superficial, and 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 they say something to the effect of "Sorry about your injury, heal fast," right? And, and I appreciate every single one because m- many many people can make that connection to pain and suffering, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. There's something, there's an emotional connection there that's a lot of times very, very hard to do on social media. Mm -hmm. People who have had similar, and one guy a few weeks before me, an old friend of mine had the exact same injury. He has a really deep connection to my injury. And we've corresponded a lot as a result, talking about our various situations, uh, people that... um, that are, that also do high risk activities, mm-hmm. even they haven't had this particular injury, they can relate to the fact that injury is a part of our worlds. And yeah. so there's a lot of connection there. Some people have taken a very moral stance and scolded me for, um, for what I'm doing. One of my students wrote, uh, maybe your new year's resolution should be to have fewer, not fewer bicycle accidents. Um, so it, it's kind of fascinating, the range of responses that people have. Some people joke. Um, one of my friends who's a mountain biker, you know, he has an, his, his left arm is held in, in spot by filament wire because of an injury he had in the backwoods. Um, so this is all really interesting, and it's all part of the research. And uh, so, so there is a silver lining to having having this injury and experience. I have to confess, Jeff, I just visited your Facebook page to look at the photo while you were speaking. And <laughs> I don't get people writing critical or sarcastic things. Wow. Um, yeah. I think of two things. First of all, the sociologist Arthur Frank and his sociology of the body work, which includes his experience of becoming a cancer patient. And what that was like. And it also makes me think of a new study that just came out into anterior cruciate ligament injuries amongst pro and college women football players. Football as in real football, not wear a helmet and shoulder pads and run around for five minutes every match, like real football. Uh, And the, the vast problem of particular muscular injuries and ACL injuries that women are getting. Uh, it's yeah. a massive study of thousands of different people, but and it literally was published this week, and it's going to be foundational. But in terms of the etiology of these things, that's still guesswork. So the, what that means is that the kind of big-time mass sample research is just trying to establish the contours, the parameters of the problem. That's but right. what they need a m- lot more of is clinical, and of course, although they, would, they wouldn't use this term, ethnographic research. Right. Now, my guess is that in your case, the etiology of what happened in terms of the physics of the body is not hard to work out, right? Right. Nor is it in terms of this issue of the ice. But the etiology that is more ethnographic is, I think, what you're trying to get at, which is absolutely the reasons for doing this what the payoff is, what the risks are, 
the rest of it. Yeah. Am I got, have I got that roughly right? No, absolutely. So I, you know, and, and, and this whole time I've been thinking about um, an essay from a long time ago. I think his name was Andrew Sparks. Yeah. Pretty sure Sparks was the last name. And he wrote an autoethnography about uh, the pain he experienced, the back pains he experienced, because he had been a rugby player when he was young. And he just, he goes through this long discussion about how identified he's been with his body because he was an elite athlete. And now that the, the being the elite athlete has caused his body to break down, he feels like his body has failed him. And there's this alienation from the body. And it's just this wonderful essay uh, that I, that I think everyone should every every sports scholar should read because sport is a danger. It, I mean, so mountain biking is an especially dangerous sport, yeah. just like American football or boxing or any number of other sports are. You know, in inevitably you're going to get injured. But all sports, if taken too seriously, are are ultimately dangerous. We. Yeah. We injure ourselves. Like in my classes, I ask my, you know, my sport classes and full of athletes. I, I ask how many people have commit, have, um, have participated in their, in competitions injured. And it's, it's usually at least 90% of them. Right. And so, so pain and injury is just part and parcel of this thing that we call sport. It's more likely in some sports, it's less likely in others, but it's, and, and, and as we age and our bodies just wear out from usage over time, again, pain um, is going to be a part and parcel of that. So understanding our relationship to pain and the meaning of our pains to each other I think is a really valuable information and, you know, this, and, and I want to explore that through yeah, and, not and just playing, my pain. Playing hurt is a, a longstanding expression. No pain, no gain. The masculinity right. bit of this is interesting because women are under so much pressure to play hurt too. Nowadays That's right. with the That's increasing right. professionalization of the women's game and the ideology of playing through pain it seems to me is so profound and spreads across high school, college, pro sports, male and female, no? Right. Well, you know, this is something that my my advisor, and I should say my other advisor besides you, Toby, because you were my first advisor in grad school and have had a a, a lasting impact on my scholarly development ever since. But my other advisor, and, and I would say my primary advisor, Michael Mesner, you know, he has talked about this quite quite a bit, that as Title IX has opened up opportunities to women and girls to participate in sport, what's, what's really happened is they've been integrated into a historically male model of sport Sports. That, that includes... Um, this emphasis on overcoming pain, uh, ignoring pain, being willing to uh, compete when injured. And so, you know, it's like absolutely Title IX in the United States is this great thing in terms of gender inclusion for sport, but inclusion into what? A model of sport that is fundamentally unhealthy. Unhealthy. And just for a bit of clarification for those outside the U.S., Title IX is part of the Federal Education Act, and it mandates and has for getting on for 60 years now, it would be, Jeff, that... I think it's 73. That 1973 is so when it was established. 50 years. Um, that federal recipients or, or universities that are recipients of federal money must basically allocate... and there's a big debate about how to do this 50% of resources that are given to sports on campus to women. And well, so it, actually the word sport isn't, doesn't come up it in isn't title there. nine right. itself, but, but, it, but that's right. Extracurricular activities, activities. So it the, gets the resources invested in men's extracurricular activities. There has to be an equal amount yeah. invested in women's. And so what that means is there has to be equal opportunity in sport. And that gets interpreted in lots of different ways. And um, the the style of football that you prefer less, um, of <laughs> course, 
style of football where people can't kick the ball apart from one player on a team, if that. that, that, kind of that that's that's right. That that's right. <laughs> um you know, that doesn't even get counted in. And so there there's all sorts of problems yeah. with the way in which it actually is practiced, but at the same time, it has just transformed um yeah. the the sporting landscape in the United right. States. It's created all sorts of opportunities. Uh, for 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 women, um, soccer, what you call football, uh, is one of the major areas, and 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 we see, you know, the U.S. women's national team has far outperformed uh, the men's national team by you know by any measure. So yeah, it's been super important. Very important, but as you say, as as Mike Messner says, it doesn't get at the core values of hegemonic sports, which are very much about competition, not collaboration, although there's collaboration within team, but also this issue of playing hurt. And one of the things I find frustrating, and, you know, there's this movement now to create an Olympics where anybody can take any performance-enhancing drug they want, and uh, there are lots of former Olympians involved, along with various medical experts, one of the things that I find frustrating about the attempt to create a drug-free world of athletics is that nothing is done about people who become addicted to painkillers or right. as a consequence of being told to use painkillers by medical staff, go on to lose sensation in various body parts that they continue to injure. You know what right, I mean? Absolutely. Nothing, that yeah, that absolutely. Legal drug use is completely acceptable to these people who are moralistic about so-called right. performance-enhancing drugs even as they are permitting and encouraging the destruction of young bodies, partly now, but mostly in their future lives. No? We, well, you know, this is something that Christoph Brissonneau talks about a lot. And he and I did a book on doping um, amongst elite athletes in France. And um, there are so many different contradictions in the world of, of doping. And, and the word doping itself is a, is a highly moralistic term. It's never been well-defined. Essentially, doping comes to mean any substance on a, you know, any substance used in a certain quantity within a certain, within a specific period of time that is on a list is doping. And that anything else is not, right? Outside of that, it's, it's not, it's not doping. Um, it creates all sorts of inequalities, um, and of course, it's now being used to force transgender people to to dope. Right. Absolutely. You know, in order to become a real person. You know, Absolutely. In, in the eyes of these absurd or self-appointed authorities. No, it, 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 it's absolutely ridiculous. And, and, you know, so the question is, what is in the best interest of the athlete's health? Mm-hmm. And the doping policies are not really concerned with athletes' health. Um, you know, so so training for sport is physically very, very it's very it's just unhealthy on the body at that elite level. And so doping is a, a workplace practice. And the way we talked about in the book is it's deviance of overconformity. Right. And so the idea of constantly excelling to achieve greater heights, to win in competition, all of these aspects of um, of elite sport are just consistent within a capitalist society. Right. And using substances to improve your performance, whether it's caffeine in the morning, alcohol in the evening, right? Whether it's taking, yeah, absolutely. I, I just had my coffee. Whether it's taking, you know, you know, aspirin or whatever, right? There's so many different things that we use. And in fact, people in sport, people in professions, say mining, agricultural labor, where the work itself causes fatigue, they will be prescribed, um, Oh, what is it? I'm blanking on on, on the term. Um, well, they, they will. I can't believe this. Right, the 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 number one the number one drug used for doping. Oxycontin. No, no, for um, not a painkiller. Oh, uh, st- steroids. Steroids. Thank you. Anabolic steroids. Right. They will be prescribed anabolic steroids. Mm. 
because the point of anabolic steroids is to push back the frontier of fatigue. Of fatigue. So the body can do things it would not otherwise be and, able to do, which well, is to say, work harder. Jeff, right? I, so I, I live in Madrid and I live in a mixed class area, quite an artsy area, but with lots and lots of construction labor working here. Many mornings I go to my local cafe slash bar, which is next door to me. There are working class guys who are your age, probably, but look my age. And right. at nine in the morning, they're having two beers with whiskey chasers. And I can see this is about the pain yep. that is caused by their labor. So right. just pardon my, my interrupting earlier. Can we get back to the book? in detail because i have to confess i read your first book i haven't read this later one um and tell us what are the big areas of doping in in france in sports what are the principal codes of sport if you like where this is undertaken so the point of the book is in in all elite sports doping is just a fact in all elite sports you know we're we're looking at at a range of different sports um, from we start with cycling because that is the center of dope. Yeah. Like you just look at the history of doping from the start of the 20th century to the Festina affair, to the creation of doping as a concept, all of that has centered in cycling and cycling is an interesting sport because there is a large amateur circuit. It's an Olympic sport, but it's also a professional sport. And then to the other extreme, you know, we've got like wrestling, which is an amateur, an Olympic sport, right? There's not, there's not a professional sport, not for, not for Olympic wrestling, right? And then another extreme is bodybuilding, right? Which is, there's no Olympic version of bodybuilding. It's, it's entirely within the market. And so the specific mechanisms vary depending because they're all in different institutional spaces, but the conclusion is the same. The athletes feel like they have to dope in order to remain competitive in their sport. Now, it might come from a government agency putting pressure on the athlete, uh, and, and that's more the case in the purely amateur sports you know they're still professionalized but they're you know there's there's no making a living you know in the market from these sports to say bodybuilding where uh there's there's a lack of strong federations it's it's all taking place in the gyms but you know the athletes are they're in the gym they're looking at the other competitors and they recognize They'll never be able to compete with these much more developed bodybuilders if they don't take the same drugs that those people are taking, you know, and, and this gets to the idea of just a, a free for all of using performance enhancing drugs. These drugs can like they can be very, very dangerous to take. That is a fact. Um human growth hormones right if you don't know what you're doing you can you can literally kill yourself using these drugs also if you don't know what you're doing you're not going to maximize the effectiveness of the drugs if you don't know how much to take and when to take and if it isn't tied to a training regime that's designed by um a physiologist who is taking your blood constantly and like monitoring the, you know, the, the rise and fall of hormones within your body and all of this like complicated stuff. That's actually the science of it is frankly beyond me, but um, I, I, I vaguely understand it. If, if you don't have that level of medical expertise, you're putting yourself at risk and you're not going to get the benefits that you could. And that was the case of French athletes in the fifties and the sixties um, into the seventies, because they, they, they were pretty much on their own. Well, that just makes the whole world a whole lot more dangerous and, uh, and, 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 and defeats the purpose of taking the pharmaceuticals. So clearly it should not be a, so 
first of all, if we wanted to make sport healthy, we would not put such an emphasis on winning and winning at all costs. We would not place the kinds of material and symbolic benefits Mm -hmm. on winning that we have now. uh, That's unlikely to happen. Right. As, as just as, as, as a matter of fact, right. People love the spectacular sports that we have. I love them. I, I know you love them as well. Right. Hmm. And so we're going to have this very dangerous model of, of sport into the foreseeable future. Um, having more oversight, right? Not uh, This is one of the recommendations that, that we have in the book. It's uh-huh. not pushing this stuff into the shadows where there isn't right. oversight makes it more dangerous and it's going to happen anyway. What are the ways in which we can develop these systems so starting from the very youngest athletes are socialized into a healthier environment, a healthier attitude. How do we create equity between different countries? So if you're in Spain or France or the United States, you have access to medical facilities and you probably have a starting wealth that's much greater than, say, a kid that's coming from an African country that who can be who can make more from a single race than his family could or her family uh could make in a whole year and but the access to the to the to the pharmaceuticals is not the same the probability of taking much riskier drugs is much higher right there's all sorts of complications that unfold in this world that's really important um to but be I'm able thinking- to get that Sorry, Jeff, if I could interrupt for a moment. I'm thinking on the one hand of the faux science that was dominating Major League Baseball in the 90s Mm -hmm. and people who put on white coats and claimed to know what they were doing who were actually addicting and destroying finally the bodies of numerous guys we could all name versus the much more, it's probably more sophisticated in Major League Baseball today. Versus, as you say, the the similar horrors of the Tour de France in the 50s, 60s and 70s. But today in the Tour de France, there are highly qualified scientists and doctors involved, and they're totally corrupt, 100%. And so they know how to keep the guys and the gals going without putting their lives at risk. And they and their employers do not care about what happens in 30 years' time one example I think of a lot is Lionel Messi, you know, maybe the mm-hmm. most sportsman in, in the world and someone who, as a consequence of his genes, was born incredibly small and grew very small. But early on in his very early on in his life, Barcelona could see how great he could be. And he was given experimental drugs to increase his growth prospects. So he's still a very short guy, as everybody knows but way beyond what would have been his inverted commas natural height. What on earth is going to happen to him when he's 55 or 60? As a great question. And, and this is one of the problems that just plagues elite sports is the transition out of, um, out of elite sports. And this is something that Christoph found. So, so the, the basis of the research for this book was it was an ethnographic, He spent over 10 years interviewing people who were dopers. It was a very, like, specific moment in time that he was able to recruit people who had been elite athletes, national, international um, teams in France, who would talk about their careers, you know, in elite sport and, and, and using drugs. And one of the things he found is... Um, addiction, as addiction is typically defined by the medical people, was not a huge issue for most of these athletes during their careers because addiction did not help them win. But when they retire, their bodies are breaking down. They're no longer this celebrity that they once were. All of a sudden, they go from what we call the extraordinary world of sport or elite sport to the normal world, and they have to become regular people again. And that's when addiction becomes a major issue is in that process of of retirement. 
for um, a whole lot of these players. And it's still, I, I think in a lot of the leagues around the world, they're getting better, but it's still a major issue because the focus is always on winning, not on retirement. And so, um, yeah, so I think this is still something we need to think about. You know, it's interesting, and, and, and I see some of this in, you know, being in Colorado Springs, our, the, the way in which the city uh, builds itself is that we're Olympic city because the Olympic, the U.S. Olympic training, um, training facilities here, or I should say one of them is, but this is like where the headquarters are. Um, so I had a student, this, and this will give you an, a sense of how precise the drug usage is. I had a student and he, while he was um, in our master's program, he worked for U.S. Cycling. And one day they were at the, um, they're at the training facility here in Colorado Springs. And one of the athletes was, they, they came and they arrested him. They pulled him right off the, uh, right off the track because he was caught doping. And so what had happened was, the race that he was in, I guess it was like a few days earlier, the weather was expected to be bad and say, move the start time of the race up an hour or two. Uh-huh. What that means is when the race ended, the drugs had not cleared his system and he got caught in the controls. One hour, two hours. That's the difference between being a clean cyclist and a dirty cyclist. The other reason why, uh, so the way that Christoph and I got to know each other is he had a Fulbright and he wanted to come to Colorado Springs. He wanted to come to Colorado Springs because one, we're the Olympic city, two, we're a military city. And one of the things he noticed, he noticed this in Paris, is that elite training centers tend to be near elite military centers. And he says there is a lot of correspondence between training an elite athlete and an elite soldier. I I, I don't know what they're called, but they're the equivalent to the Green Beret in in France or, you know, elite soldiers. Right. And this one guy was telling him, he's like, you know, we have to be able to hike for in Afghanistan for three days into a firefight, have that fight. And then hike out without sleeping. How does the human body do that? Right? It's impossible to do without chemical support, without pharmaceutical supports. And so the knowledge that's the, the the knowledge of the body that's developed in elite athletics is applicable in elite military. And if you see if you ever go to the 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 USOC um training facility the hospital that i went to to get my leg treated is literally next door so christoph is like of course there is a hospital next door to the training facility because there is this correspondence between the medicine the athletics and the military and if you look at the grants that wada gives out the world anti-doping association a lot of them have military applications, whether it's specifically about the soldiers or take, for instance, astronauts, the loss of bone density when they go up into space. A lot of this anti-doping research is really about the pharmaceuticals that the astronauts could be taking, for instance. So there's these very interesting correspondences and and institutional relationships uh, going on. And that's something that we talk about at the very end of the book. Now, in your first book, Jeff, you discuss some of these things in more ideological terms. Right. I think it's fair to say ideological and symbolic terms. Perhaps you could talk about that. But I think what's interesting is when we take it beyond that into be institutional resonance, and that is amazing. I hadn't thought about it, but it makes so much sense. Could you drag us now back, 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 as they say in baseball commentary, to your first book, which sure. is a, a remarkable study of Cold War issues, masculinity, and sports in the U.S. Yeah, so absolutely. So in Discipline and Indulgence, 
um, I'm trying to understand how a gridiron football, specifically college football, was part of a larger Cold War project of producing citizens, citizens who were compatible with the political economy of the Cold War. And obviously, I'm like talking about the the players, but more so I'm talking about the fans because it's a study of the media and how the media works within this context. For instance, to make a highly territorialized understanding of the world just seem natural and inevitable. And, you know, so I focus on like politicians that use um, that use football metaphors to explain the Cold War, or conversely, athletes that use military metaphors to explain football. And uh, and this is a really significant thing, because if you think about the history of the United States, going back to George Washington, the United States has been an isolationist nation. We've, we, we've wanted to avoid foreign entanglements. And so getting the citizens of the United States to buy into massive investments throughout the world so that the United States could be the global cop is a really hard sell, but it's absolutely necessary to expand U.S. capitalism after the Second World War. And it's this incredible opportunity for the United States to become the global hegemon. And so I'm trying to understand how popular culture, but specifically football, figured in figured into to all of that. And I look at that uh, in in a variety of different ways. Um, okay. Yeah, looking Tell at us, how. So, sorry, Jeff. If I could drag you to one particular famous article that I know you know well, which is JFK in Sports Illustrated, uh, and you've written about this, the muscle gap and the missile right. gap, right? right? And how, I mean, this is so starkly portrayed there, isn't it? Where, you know, the United States becomes a nation of sit on your ass and watch television while the Soviets are creating these machines of young That's people. right. Yeah? That's right. So what, what I was focusing on there through this idea of the, mis- the muscle gap, and, and I didn't coin the term the muscle gap. That was the term that was used in the 1950s. And, mm. and it's several years, it, it's coined several years before, uh, before Sputnik. Sputnik is like 1957, and that's when the missile gap begins. And one of the things I'm arguing here is that this, mis- this muscle gap discourse is trying to negotiate a contradiction in U.S. Cold War foreign policy. There were two prongs of the strategy of containment. There's the first prong that's militaristic. We're all very familiar with it, right? It leads to the development of the military-industrial complex. It leads to U.S. interventions in Korea, Vietnam, Indonesia, Guatemala, throughout Africa, right? Just all over the world, right? It's an incredible list of places. And, and, And the idea of the military part of the strategy of containment is to contain the Soviet Union, and we really saw um, inaccurately China as uh, subservient to the Soviet Union, right? To to contain the Soviet Union to limited spheres of influence. There's a second part, a second prong to the strategy of containment. This oftentimes gets called the cultural Cold War. And this is, so the military part is negative, the cultural part is positive, and it's building up an image of the good life that capitalism can can provide, right? That cultural capitalism can provide. And this is where football comes in. And so it works with the first prong, you limit the Soviet Union, right? You contain the Soviet Union to limited spheres of influence, and then the citizens of the Soviet Union can look over the iron wall and see this wonderful world of consumer comforts that they're missing, right? And so this was about warming up the Cold War. Um, There's an inherent contradiction between the Spartan requirements of um, the discipline 
of the military prong of the Cold War and the hedonism and the indulgence of the cultural Cold War. And the 1950s is when consumerism really just takes off in the United States. And so then you've got this problem. You've got you've got to have the cultural aspect because that's all this commodity production and um, and consumption that is just crucial to the you know developing surplus capital, selling this image of the of the good life, but that produces couch potatoes. You still need these vigorous, to use Kennedy's term, these vigorous young men that can go out into the dark corners of the earth and shine the light of civilization slash democracy slash capitalism. And so physical, so, so this leads to this whole discourse of the muscle gap. And the muscle gap said Soviet youth are stronger, harder, and they have more endurance than our kids. And it was just just overdetermined by this very, like, homoerotic language. It's incredible. And it's constant uh, uh, preoccupation with penetration. And they use that language, right? Because, you know, and this is why, like, a Cold War homophobia, we had to worry about um, homosexual men because like Soviet ideology, they can be penetrated, right? And we have this open society. And so we're easily penetrated by all these forces. So we need to harden and we need to harden our boys. And so physical education professionalizes in the 1950s and takes the form that people like me experienced in the 1970s and 80s and my kids are still experience, experiencing a very testing-based version of physical education. Um, and this was the way to negotiate this contradiction, this inherent contradiction in, in mid-20th century capitalism in the United States. I, I think it's the Carter administration that seeks to impose national physical education standards. The Which property, administration? The Carter administration, I think, um, tries to create... So we, I mean, it starts with Kennedy, I would say. Yeah, yeah but there's... I mean, there's a, well, maybe I, you're the expert on this, not me. Perhaps there's just a recrudescence. But there's a moment with Carter that I recall when he wants to see a minimum set of physical education standards constructed for use in high schools. No, absolutely. I think you're absolutely right about that. Right. There's there's different periods with different sets of like. So so it's, it's under Kennedy where the te the testing becomes um, the model a and okay. all of the all the kids are being run through these various different tests. And I do remember as a kid during the Carter administration, you know, a whole new set of standards that are coming out that we were experiencing. That, that makes sense. Now, Prof, we've um, got just a few minutes left. What I would like to do, if that's OK with you, is ask you a couple more questions of my own and then sure. the space open for you to add or subtract whatever you'd like um, okay. in terms of what we have or haven't covered. So my first question is, how does Prof Montes de Oca get around or deal with his love for things that he regards as so perilous for society? I, I'm not sure I'm quite following the question. Can you be a little bit more specific? Sorry, I, I wasn't being clear. You love sports. You're critical yeah. of sports. That's right. How do you reconcile those things? It's so hard to reconcile. So, I, you know, when I was when I was writing Discipline Indulgence, right, I started in grad school. It was the basis of my my um, my dissertation. And, and I had to, I actually had to ask myself that that question explicitly. You know, gridiron football represents everything I'm opposed to. It's racist. It's sexist. It's homophobic. It's militaristic. It's all of these things a leftist should not embrace. And yet I love it. 
why do I love it? I love it because I love my father. And football was the medium through which my father and I built a relationship. I, I used to joke that if it, if it wasn't for gardening, my dad and I wouldn't have anything to talk about in the off season. <laughs> well, and, and this is deeply ironic because, as you know, my father grew up in an American Indian boarding school on mm -hmm. his mom's reservation. So my last name is Montes de Oca because my grandfather is from Mexico, but my dad grew up on the Cattaraugus Reservation in western New York, which is a Seneca Seneca Nation of Indians reservation. Um, so he did not learn the love of American football from his grandfather. He learned it in the boarding school because Indian boys were seen as having a deficient masculinity. And football, amongst other sports, was a technology used to instill an Anglo-American masculinity in these kids, right? And so my relationship to, well, football is incredibly fraught. And it's only become more so. The more I've studied it, the more I've just sort of watched it. And we, you know, you look at the players' protests that I've wrote about quite a bit, um, you know, in uh, in 2020 and, and, and beyond. Um it's very, very difficult to embrace. And it's not it's not just American football as a game, which is to use the, the term the kids love to use these days, really toxic. The NFL is this just a horrible corporation that embodies everything wrong with US capitalism. Uh it's become increasingly difficult for me to engage as a fan with those sports. And yet I keep getting dragged back in because of my father and now my sons. And it's something that bonds us together. And we have these emotional ties that is woven, that football is woven into the emotional ties that we have with each other. So all I can say, it's, it's incredibly fraught. Um, but then I watch boxing in an unproblematic way. <laughs> well, I, I really appreciate your frankness there, Prof. And for those who, who don't know this but can probably guess it, these schools that your dad went to were some of the great evils of the 19th and 20th centuries, and they still have effects on people's identities today. We're learning a lot more about what happened in Canada. Um, the U.S. story is better known for longer, but there are still things to reveal and to disclose. And Absolutely. I very much appreciate well, your frankness in sharing that. So, you know, the, the, the boarding schools are just part of the colonial relationship between the United States and its indigenous nations. And, and I think something that's important to understand, and this is not a defense of the schools, is that they were a progressive response to yep. an earlier stage of U.S. imperialism. So the earlier stage is is captured in the misquote by General Sheridan, the only good Indian is a dead Indian. Mm. Well, once the frontier is secured, right, the Indian nations are conquered. We move into a different stage of settler colonialism, and that's when the, the, the General Pratt for, uh, quote, uh, kill the Indians, save the man takes over. And it says, we don't need to commit complete genocide and absolutely wipe these savages out. We can destroy their culture. And the, the goal of the boarding school was to route Indian kids into the, into U.S. citizenship via the lowest rungs of the labor market. And so, you know, my dad, you know, God bless him. Uh, he could build a house from the ground up because those were skills he learned in the boarding school. But the main skills he learned in the boarding school was how to milk a cow because it was a functional dairy farm, right? The the education the kids got there was really secondary. Uh, my family was were outliers because all of the boys and one of the daughters went to college coming out of the school, primarily the boys went into the military or they went into prison. 
And the girls either primarily went into abusive marriages or they went into domestic labor, um, working as domestics, I should say. And, and, and so uh, it, it's really hard. It, it's very hard to capture just how destructive uh, the boarding schools were on so many indigenous communities. Um, and and yet, um, in a lot of cases, they were the best option. Yep. So the boarding school that my dad grew up in, it was very competitive to get your children into that school, particularly during, say, the Great Depression. Because you think about how much everybody in the United States and in other countries around the world were hurt economically by the Depression. Well, just imagine what it was like in Indian country. Parents could literally not feed their children. Uh, my aunt's husband got his first pair of shoes in the boarding school. So when they shut down the boarding school, the community was very split about that. On the one hand, there were so many abuses and harms from the boarding school uh, that they everybody hated it. Not everybody, but the majority hated it. Um, but also it was viewed as one more time the United States was not fulfilling its promise to provide support to a domestic dependent nation, right? The, the Seneca. So yeah, very complicated um, history there. Yeah, I, I appreciate that very much. So my second and last question before throwing it to you, Prof, is to ask how you find shit out. <laughs> this is the, you know, uh, <laughs> the real term that should be used for those awful courses called things like methods 101 or sociological methods. How do you go about finding things out? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, for one thing, I start every morning reading the news. I mean, I must spend two hours, hour to two hours reading the news every, every morning. And and admittedly, a lot of it is just skimming headlines uh, because the, the bulk of the mainstream news is just, it, it's, it's awfully hard for me to read. It's not particularly interesting. I think um, being curious is crucial to what we do. If you're not constantly curious about different things, and then I just do random searches a lot. I mean, okay, I shouldn't say I just do random searches. Obviously, I do very focused searches. And so Google Scholar has become just so, so useful to me uh, for finding uh, academic research. I do lots of Google, just regular Google searches as well, just to see what's going on out there. Um, getting, immersing yourself in a topic. So we really, and there isn't time to go into it, but, you know, the mountain biking research. Um, so as, I mean, I've been a media scholar for, since I was your student, Toby, uh, even before I was your student, even I was a media scholar and, um, I'd been writing about NFL marketing for, for, for several years and I frankly just got so tired of saying, I mean, it's like, how many ways can you say the NFL is evil genius, right? <laughs> At the end of the day, um, and actually some of the words that I heard from, were, that that you said to me decades ago were ringing in the back of my mind when the essay is already written before you've started it, there's no point to writing it. And I'm just like, okay, I'm tired of writing about what's wrong with the NFL, and and so then I asked myself, well, what do I want to do? What's the positive, right? Because it's all this negative writing. What's the positive? I love mountain biking. And and I was like, you know, freaking Mike Mesner, whatever he's doing in his life, that's what he's writing about. I'm like, I'm going to do that. I'm going to write about, about mountain biking. And, and you know, and I, and I started out with a kind of very sort of like, Henri Lefebvre, uh, theory of everyday life approach of, you know, you know, alienation, de-alienation, re-alienation, right? So who are mountain bikers? Overwhelmingly, they're white, 
They're professional class people. Historically, it's been predominantly male, but that's changing very quickly right now. But they're still professional class people because it's a freaking expensive sport to engage mm. in. Um, and most of them are, you know, doing this kind of soulless white collar work that pays decently well, but um, isn't fulfilling. And so mountain biking is this de-alienating moment, right? You're out in quote unquote nature, right? And nature means different things. That's why I say quote unquote, because nature can mean such different things. Mm. Um, and uh, you get to be the person you wish you were. You're brave. You're skillful. You have, you're constantly achieving measurable accomplishments. You have this correspondence to the natural world around you. Most importantly, you're in control of your body and your time, right? Which is wonderful. At the same time, mountain biking is an industry-driven sport, and it has been since the 1970s. Um, and I would say probably even more so now, right, as the industry has has grown. You're doing all of this on indigenous land, and you're naturalizing this mode of recreation and pleasure, right? Nature as a space where we go for pleasure and uh, to recreate ourselves so that we can plug ourselves back into our alienating jobs, right? So this is kind of this sort of stuff, but then more and more, I became really interested in um, in, in debates about the, the land and control over the land. And so I joined a trail building association, very problematic name, Medicine Wheel Trail, uh, what are we, Medicine Wheel Trail Associates? Oh, shoot, I'm forgetting. I have the worst memory for names. Anyways, I just call it Medwheel, so I don't have to... to uh, use the uh, the medicine wheel appropriation. Um, it is so complicated in a place like Colorado Springs. And I know we're at, running out of time. And this is where I'm adding in my little bit to your question about how do I learn stuff, right? So I go to the meetings. Um, I engage with people. I engage with different land managers. I went to, um, there's a, this this round table on the greenback cutthroat trout. So this is my story of the fish. The greenback cutthroat trout is the state fish. It's kind of interesting. Uh, the trouble is, or the trouble for the greenback cutthroat trout, we'll just say the fish. The trouble for the fish is they're indigenous to the South Arkansas River. The trouble is because of mining, agriculture, tourism and the introduction of invasive trout species, they no longer exist there on the South uh, Arkansas River. There are some creeks in the Colorado Springs area, specifically the Jones Park region, that are the only places in the world left where the fish are self-reproducing in the wild. So what is this, how does this relate to mountain biking? The Endangered Species Act kicks in, and now this area has to be protected. The very easy response is, well, let's shut down all recreation in the, it's specifically the Bear Creek watershed, because people walking on trails, riding their bicycles on trails, riding their motorcycles on trails, the argument are causing erosion that's going into the creek, the Bear Creek, and it's threatening the trouts. Well, that happened a few years ago. Extremely controversial amongst recreation users in this area because this is an especially beloved air. These trails are especially beloved for a whole variety of reasons. So then what happens in the succeeding years? The trout population crashes. Despite the fact that people aren't that aren't able to use these trails, and it's created all sorts of of anger. Now there are multiple different land managers that come together to work this stuff out. The county, the Forest Service. This, you know, a lot of this. There's, uh, you know, the, obviously the the um, the Endangered Species Act is also um, is also in effect here, um, and it's helping to govern the use of the land, right? 
And so, um, so why are the trout, why is the trout population declined so much? Probably because of the, the drought primarily. And the hope is this last year, we had a lot of rainfall. It, you know, it scoured the, the sediments out of the creek. The, the trout population uh, should be able to rebound. But there's something else that doesn't get discussed. Farther up the creek, there is a whole lot of mining going on. And the mining is regulated by the Colorado Mining Act. So you have these two major federal laws coming into conflict with each other within this particular area. And the Colorado, Mi the Colorado Mining Act is a federal law. It's not specific to Colorado. Highly controversial, right? And there are a bunch of independent miners up there not adhering to the law, but Forest Service isn't going after them. So it's this very complicated confluence of different interests, uses, uh, laws, um, land managers, and just being a part of these debates. I have learned so much, and I've gotten incredibly confused. <laughs> Prof, I, Jeff, I deeply appreciate your running together the answer to the second question and the open space to you. And I think that admitting confusion is something that can be very difficult for professors to do because it can sound like an either-orism where you're sitting on the fence. You're not sitting on the fence at all. You're working out where the fences are, who owns them, and who benefits therefrom. And Absolutely. And yeah. I think that's wonderful. So... Thank you very much for being in the pod and everybody listening, I'm sure wishes you a speedy and thorough recovery. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> uh, and as the saying goes, get back on that bike. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs>